So today we're going to be talking about working with the trans and non-binary population. For this presentation, I'm going to refer to them as TGNB. Simple, easy, and so from now on that is what we're going to be saying. And today we're going to be focusing on an overview of community mental health disparities and treatment. So a little bit about me. Uh, I'm a global, globally known advocate, uh, thought leader. I'm a lic recently licensed therapist and facilitator. And my entire goal is to bring awareness, inclusion, and empowerment to the trans and non-binary community. Uh, I've been openly trans since I was 13. And so if you do the math, uh, it's early 2000s. And I use my professional experience as well as my personal experience to help facilitate meaningful conversations. And most of my conversations are with other mental health clinicians um, and as well as media. So we're gonna start off sort of with a little bit of history. So Christine Jorgensen, she is a very familiar name in the TGNB community, but not as widely known outside of it. And she was really the star of public awareness of TGNB individuals. So Christine Jorgensen, um, publicly transitioned. So she went across to Europe, did her transformation, uh, at the time they called it, you know, transformation, and came back to America. And there's all these like old footage, all these old uh, photos of her getting off of an airplane and having the media just go crazy with her big reveal, right? So she's really thought it was like the early 40s. Um, and then to like late 50s was sort of her time in the spotlight and that was the introduction to the world but as we all know research demonstrates that we've been around throughout recorded history on every continent that's been inhabited by human beings in fact if you look all the way all the way back to caveman paintings there are you know descriptions of people living in between gender roles um, Native American tribes have two-spirit, right? A lot of sort of indigenous communities have spiritual leaders and spiritual healers, and they are all considered in between multiple genders. So let's start off with some vocabulary because I bet a lot of us are a little bit like, whoa, there's a lot of words and I don't know where to start. So good news is I am here to help, right? And as I said, it might be a little confusing. You might have some questions. Feel free to type it in the chat box and I'll make sure that all of your questions are answered because I'd rather you ask me here today than ask the wrong person, right? And, and come off like sort of in a bad spot with a client. So let's start off with commonly used terms in the community. So sex. Sex is what we're most commonly familiar with when it comes to gender, right? So sex is the classification of a person as male, female, or intersex. And this is what has to do with genitals, um, chromosomes, right? When someone is born, I know a lot of us are used to the gender reveal parties, but really it's more of a sex reveal party, right? Because it's the genitals and what someone's assigned as birth. 
gender identity is completely different. So it's someone's internal sense of gender. This could be congruent with sex, which is cisgender, and we'll talk about in a second, um, or incongruent, which is transgender, or neither, which is non-binary. Um, so it doesn't have to always match. And what happens when it doesn't match, right? What happens when your gender doesn't match your, your sex? Well, you're transgender, which is someone who, you know, it's the wild, more accepted umbrella term, right? But it's someone who doesn't express or associate with the sex they are assigned as birth. So I'm trans. I was born female and identify as male or non-binary. This is the most common term you're actually going to be hearing nowadays. A lot of youth, I always feel so old saying that now, but a lot of the youth, you know, they um, they are more along the non-binary spectrum. And these are individuals whose gender identity actually goes beyond the categories of man and woman. This is not the same as transgender. Let's be very, very clear. Transgender is very binary, right? Male, female, man, woman, non-binary, neither, right? So we'll talk about pronouns in a minute, but their pronouns wouldn't be he or she, right? It would be they, them. Cisgender, this is a newer term, and cisgender is a term used to describe people who are not transgender or non-binary. So think of the heterosexual to the homosexual, right? So most people, I'm going to make an assumption, I'm sorry, but I'm going to make an assumption that most people on this call or the Zoom are cisgender, right? So your gender identity is congruent with the sex you were assigned at birth. And a really easy way to remember that is that trans means to change, where cis in Latin means to stay the same. So to stay the same gender or to change genders. Going to move on. This is the gender unicorn. I love the gender unicorn. A lot of you might have seen the gender bred person. We've actually moved away from that chart because it's too binary. The gender unicorn is awesome. This was made by a bunch of trans and non-binary college students. Um, and it sort of shows us gender identity. So you could see here, gender identity could be female, woman, girl, male, man, boy, any other gender that falls in line. Your gender expression, so you could see in the little um, thought bubble, the rainbow is, you know, what you think, right? Gender expression is, you can see the green dots around the unicorn. That's how you express your gender. So I could actually identify as male, but love like um, to do nail polish or wear like ruffles, right? Things that are more feminine. That's me expressing my gender in a feminine way. Sex is signed as birth. You could see the little chromosome down in the uh, genital region of the unicorn, right? That's what we're assigned to as birth. And for some people, cisgender, right, stays the same. Who you're physically attracted to, you could see the little uh, orange heart. That could be anyone. So here's something that's really new for a lot of people um, is that your gender identity and your sexual orientation aren't the same. So who you think you are and who you love are different. And same with who you're emotionally attracted to, right? So you could be emotionally and physically attracted to different people, but that's a whole other workshop for another day, right? We could talk about that forever.
So here's a really, really easy way to remember all this, because you're probably already like, whoa, Jake, this is a lot of stuff. Good news, I have a little fun antidote, okay? So gender identity is who you go to bed as, right? So who do you go to bed as? Sexual orientation is who do you go to bed with? And gender expression is what do you go to bed wearing, right? What are you wearing? A nighty, pajamas, nothing at all, right? That's up to you. So that's a really fun way to remember that. And I want you to all just take a quick second. If you feel comfortable, share it in the chat box. Um, take a minute to share where you might fall on this chart. So for example, I express myself in a masculine way. I identify as male and I'm physically attracted to men. So let's take a little second and go over this a little bit slower, right? So everyone take a moment and think about what gender they identify with, okay? So that would be male, female, non-binary. Just take a second. My example is male. Gender expression, right? Gender identity female, great, thanks Stacy. Um, gender expression, so do you express yourself more masculine, more feminine, neither? Some people are like, I don't care. If it's cheap, I'll buy it, right? Sex assigned at birth. So when you came out, you know, were you assigned female, male, or intersex, right? And who are you physically attracted to? Could be one gender, all genders, no genders, right? You could be asexual. And emotionally attracted, very similar, right? To physically, it could be all, none, a few. So just take a moment. And if you feel like typing, you can. If not, no problem. Just think and marinate. And remember the gender, oh, female, masculine, female, woman. Nicole says, identifies woman, expresses as both feminine and masculine, assigned as female, mostly physically and emotionally attracted to men, really women. Awesome, see? Thanks, Nicole, and thanks, Audrey. Emily, what, uh, gender identity, woman, gender expression, feminine, sex assigned at birth, female, uh, physically men, emotionally men. See, Emily Stacy has one too, attracted to women and trans men. It's not that hard, right? Super easy once you stop and think about it. So keep typing and if you feel like it, I'm gonna move on and I really appreciate all of the sharing. Uh, we do more learning the more we share, right? Cause I don't like to be the focus. Okay, so pronouns. Pronouns you probably haven't really given a lot of thought to since like third grade, right? I think that's when we learned, maybe second, third grade when we learned vocabulary. So pronouns are generally how we refer to people. I know like if I'm out and I forget someone's name, I'll be like, oh, there she goes, right? Or, oh, there he is. But sometimes pronouns can be tricky. And pronouns can be really difficult when you're working with community that pronouns really matter, right? So someone who is trans and they say, I identify as female, calling them by female pronouns are really, really important to them. 
So the most common pronouns you're going to hear are she and her, he and him, and they and them. And they and them are what non-binary individuals are usually using uh, to identify as. And people are like, they and them, that's weird. That's like for two people. Well, not really. Because how many times have you been walking down the street and you see like a cute little dog or a cat and you're like, oh my God, look at that dog. Oh my God, they're so cute, right? Still one dog. So why does it have to mean that it's a multiple? And the great thing to remember about they and them pronouns is if you're ever working with a client or you're ever working with somebody who identifies non-binary, a great trick is to imagine they have a little mouse in their pocket, right? Because then you'll never get tripped up on using they and them because there's always two things, right? Look at them over there. Look at them go, right? So you're probably asking, well, Jake, how do I know someone's pronouns unless they tell me? Well, you kind of just answered your own question. You always ask. And the best possible way to ask is to also lead by example. So I, did, I didn't do a good example, and I should have done it, is my name is Jake, and I go by he, him pronouns, right? When I meet someone new for the first time or I get a client on the phone, I always answer the phone. Hi, my name is Jacob. Nice to talk, meet you. I go by he, him pronouns. How may I address you, right? What pronouns should I use? Not pronouns do you prefer because that's telling people that it's a choice, right? Their pronouns are a choice that we can use if we feel like it. No. What pronouns do you use? What pronouns can I use to affirm your identity, right? Always ask. There's nothing wrong with asking someone their pronouns. So as I continue, if you guys want to type in what your pronouns might be just to practice, right? Um, that's a good little practice. And before I move on, any questions on pronouns? Because I know this could be pretty, pretty, um, it could trip people up. If you have a question, go ahead and, and type in the chat box and we'll make sure to get to you. The idea of pretending, that, yes, it is, it's so good. The mouse is fantastic. Or like whatever you want, like a little rat or like a little puppy, right? Whatever you want. Have fun with it. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, so here's some stats. I know this is a heavy slide, but I think that stats are really, really important, especially for those of you that are working in community settings, community mental health settings, and you get you know, people in and out of your door all day. So something to remember, 29% of TGNB individuals live in poverty. And for trans people of color, those rates are even higher at 48%. That's a huge number. Actually, the, the uh, minority in the United States that are facing most amount of poverty are transgender non-binary individuals. Only 30% of women's shelters are actually willing to house trans women. This actually just recently changed um, two or three days ago. Gavin Newsom in California said that trans individuals when being incarcerated can choose where they want to be housed based on gender identity. This also goes out towards shelters, so places of immediate shelter and need. So this is actually a great change. 
Um, 27% of TGNB individuals have been fired, not hired, or denied a promotion due to their identity. I'm probably guessing that's higher than 27%, but we also have to take into account that most trans individuals are unemployed to begin with. So it's a little skewed statistic. 22% of TGNB individuals and 32% of TGNB people of color have no health insurance coverage. That's even with affordable care. Uh, and something that we'll learn about in law in a second is people can actually be denied health insurance coverage, or um, not health insurance coverage, uh, health care because of being trans. 29% of a TGNB adults have actually been refused health care by a doctor because of their gender identity. And guess what? In Cal, uh, a federal law says that's legal. We'll talk about that in a second. 54% of TGNB adults have experienced some form of intimate, in, intimate partner violence. And those are the reported numbers. 47% of TGNB individuals have been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And this is the stat that gets me every year because it's higher and higher each year, but already in 2020, the United States have seen the murders of 30 TGNB individuals. And let's keep in mind, this is because they are trans, right? It's not a murder in conjunction with something else or an accidental, you know, you know, a car accident or something like that. These are hate-inspired crimes, and this number goes up and up and up every year. So this is the boring stat information, but I think it's really, really important to know. So let's talk about diagnoses, okay? So diagnostic history. So diagnoses emerged in the mid-1970s, but let's remember it was still classified as a gay disorder, right? So it didn't have its own sort of thing yet. In the DSM-4, however, we made some progress, and gender identity disorder was implied, uh, was the diagnosis. However, it was implied that the person's identity was disordered, right? What happens when you put disorder after something? It makes people think that there's something wrong with them. So the DSM-5 actually took it a step further. I was actually very surprised. Um, gender dysphoria was introduced instead of gender identity disorder. So this implies that there's discomfort in being transgender rather than disorder. But as we're gonna learn, that's actually not always the case. Sometimes there actually isn't discomfort. But this is the diagnostic history. So here's some things that we need to know as clinicians, right? So the professional standards, competencies, and guidelines. There's three main ones. So there's the endocrine society. Uh, this is the treatment of a transsexual person. Um, they still haven't changed their name, but this is more of the endocrine, endocrine um, like it's more about hormonal treatment, right? So stuff about like when a trans individual is ready for hormones. We don't use this one as much. The two we use mostly are the World Professional Association for Trans Health, we call that WPATH, and the American Psychological Association. So this one, I think in my opinion, is the best practice. I'm gonna slow down, I'm sorry, I know I talk very fast. I get excited, you guys, this stuff excites me. I'm a professional trans person. You can't say that a lot. 
So the WPATH standards of care was first published in 1979. So let's take a step back and talk about the people who were determining treatment for trans folks, okay? So we're talking about white, cisgender, heterosexual men. And we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about microaggressions and privilege in the next, um, the next lecture next week. But I want you to think about who came up with the treatment of trans individuals, right? So these topics included, you know, ep epidemiological concerns, therapeutic approaches, children and adolescent and adult treatment, and mental health disparities. And so the standards of care are kind of like a guide. So it says you have to have been out for these amount of years before you can start hormones. And then once you start hormones, after two years, you can have surgery, right? It's sort of like a checklist of treating a trans person. As a trans person, I can say that the standards are very rigid. And, you know, when I came out, I came out at 13, but if I had to have waited based off of the WPATH standards of care till I was 18, I probably would have been dead. Probably would have killed myself because I was depressed, right? So the standards are a little rigid. This is why I'm a huge, huge fan of, and I apologize in advance for these two meaty slides, but the American Psychological Association standards, which talks about how gender is non-binary, gender and identity and sexual orientation aren't the same, Intersect intersecting identities, which we'll talk more about next time, attitudes and knowledge, stigma, prejudice, discrimination, and violence, institutional barriers, promoting social change, right? These are all standards we need to think about when treating our clients. I'm gonna move forward to continuing about it, but I'll be able to share this stuff with you if you need to read it more. Standards continued working with youth and older adults, how that's different, right? Treating someone who's 15 is different than treating someone who's 50, regardless of being trans or not. So we need to take that into consideration. Co-occurring conditions, positive outcome and social support, romantic and sexual relationship, relationships, parenting and family creation, interdisciplinary approach, research, education, and training, which all of you are meeting that standard right now. So yay, you all are meeting that standard. So when, you're probably thinking, Jake, why are you sharing all this with me right now? Well, when you eventually have a trans or non-binary client come into your office, go online to the American Psychological Association, and each one of these things I just highlighted has their own paragraphs about things to consider in each category. And it's a great roadmap if you're ever stuck about what to do next. And it's free. I love free. So here are some challenges that trans and non-binary people face. Bullying and violence. I was horrendously bullied when I came out to the point where I actually had to leave my school. Um, I was shoved into lockers. I was called names. Uh, I was assaulted physically and sexually by students. Um, teachers would watch and encourage. Uh, it wasn't a safe environment. I actually had to drop out of school in the ninth grade. So this led to not being able to finish education. And I was very fortunate. My parents found other opportunities. 
but many trans individuals don't even have a high school education because getting through high school is a really, really hard thing to do. So that leads to employment opportunities. There aren't a lot of employment opportunities, we know, without a higher education. Housing, they're allowed to be discriminated on against, um, and we'll get into that in a second, about housing. Access to healthcare, which we'll talk about. Institutional settings, so when you're in a prison or you're in a psychiatric hospital, you're not treated very well. And laws and police, and you know, this is a very touchy subject, especially in today's day and age, but trans individuals have historical um, violence with laws and police. And that's something to consider, right? If they're in a dangerous situation, calling the police can sometimes make it worse. And I promise we're almost at a question break. So bear with me. Some laws. Okay, so this is something to really remember, especially if you're a caseworker, okay? So there are no federal laws that ban discrimination based on gender identity. So you might be thinking of Title IX. Title IX um, was recently reversed and saying that it only protects sex assigned at birth, okay? So that means that a trans person can actually be kicked off of their teams, you know, their football team, because their chromosomes don't say they're male. However, state and local laws may ban this kind of discrimination. So California actually protects trans students, right? So it's always really important to look about county and state. The Affordable Care Act reversed protections, this happened in June, reversed protections on gender identity. So up until June, I could not be turned away from medical services based on being trans. Now I can. So this means if I go somewhere and I have an ear infection and the doctor finds out I'm trans, they can choose not to give me antibiotics. My ear infection has nothing to do with my genitals. But if a doctor doesn't like the fact that I'm trans, see you later. And that's, that's law. Um, Fair Housing Act also only prohibits discrimination based on sex. So if a landlord is like, oh, I don't want this trans person living here, they can discriminate. It's okay. California, however, does protect gender diverse employees and by law, your place of employment should have a, a piece of paper or a poster that highlights trans employee discrimination rights. So if you work in a clinic or you work in a hospital and you don't see that, your place of work is violating law. So just letting you guys know. I get very heated about this stuff. I can just be angry all day. So let's talk about some positive, okay? So there's some counter narratives that we have in psychology. Some of the counter narratives are that trans people actually have healthy and loving relationships, right? A lot of people think they don't. I'm actually getting married next year. I've been in a wonderful, loving relationship. Psychologists are advocates and they also model resilience. That's our job, right? As therapists, caseworkers, social workers, to model the resilience that trans people have. Trans people also know themselves. Like, I know who I am. I don't know what I wanna do the rest of my life, but I certainly know that I'm a trans individual. 
And trans people, oh, thank you guys. Uh, congratulating. Uh, trans people actually oversee their own mental health, right? So if I'm depressed, I know it's because of the state of the world and not because I'm trans. And if I tell you that, you got to believe me, right? There's also no one way to be trans. And we'll learn, we'll talk a little bit more about that too. Remember, this is just the base. We're just covering the base of a lot of stuff today. And then we're going to get into more specific topics the next two sessions. All right, I promised there would be questions. So what questions do you have so far? And if I know we're going to answer your question in a further slide, I will politely decline answering until we get to that slide. So lay it on me. And I want you to ask questions you might be embarrassed to ask. Also, if you don't feel like publicly asking that question, feel free to private message me and I'll, and I'll ask it anonymously. So the first question is, how do you recover from making a mistake with pronouns? Ah, so we will touch on this a little bit, but I will answer a little bit of that now. Okay, so the best possible thing to do when making a mistake with pronouns is to one, say this, I'm so sorry. And that's it. That's it. I'm so sorry. And move on. You could re-say the sentence again. So say uh, this is an example. They use pronouns they, them. Uh, accidentally said he, him, right? So, well, oh, you know, he, him, you know, hello, sir, how are you doing? Sorry. Hey, how are you doing today? That's it. Because what happens is if you stop and apologize, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to, I've been trying really hard, you know, how can I fix this? What happens it becomes about you, right? Not about the client. So quickly apologizing and moving on. And also, if you want to acknowledge it, if that's the type of relationship you have with your client and saying, I'm sure that maybe the trust was broken there a little bit, but we'll do better next time, right? can help too, but it happens, right? It happens. Yes, staff education is extremely important. And I actually have a couple of to-dos for everybody at the end of this, um, at the end of this lecture that I think will help with staff education. So thank you, Patricia, that absolutely, absolutely. So here are some medical aspects, and I think it's really important, even as mental health clinicians or caseworkers or however you are in this field, to know about the medical aspects of transition, because that's some, oh, I thought I heard a recent Supreme source of discrimination due to discrimination. Oh, yes, a recent Supreme um, Court decision where a justice ruled in favor of gender as a source of due to discrimination. Um, it that's the one that kind of has to do with the medical aspect and it's still being fought i'm actually on um after this i'm joining like a legislative lgbt roundtable and we're actually going to be discussing that issue so if you don't mind i could maybe get your email if you want to private message me and i can send you an update on all that if that works okay um and then the concern about the health care that many receive. Yes, me too. This is why we are doing, doing this presentation. So, um, but as far as the Supreme Court decision, I'll get you more clarification on that. I will have to say I've been out of the loop the last week or two 
um, and things change so fast. So I apologize if anything I say is actually changed in the last week. Um, okay, medical aspects. So therapy and hormones. So we gotta remember, does anyone remember like back in puberty? I do, I had to go through it twice. Um, that was fun. But you know, back in puberty, how everything was just such a big deal all the time because your hormones are up and down and back and forth and navigating a new body and changes, right? Same thing for trans individuals when they go through what we call second puberty, right? So hormones can create an emotional change which may cause problems at work school and relationships so when your clients come to you and they want to talk about here's one i hear all the day all the time because most of my clients are trans are my partner said to me that i was being an ass and they say it's because of my testosterone right normalizing that behavior right normalizing those thoughts are really really important Navigating problems can be difficult, especially within relationships, as people need to adjust to physical changes. So for testosterone, as we'll get into in a second, you know, your skin can break out. And for someone who's used to having really beautiful skin and all of a sudden it's changing, it's like, it's difficult, especially when you're someone who doesn't want people to look at them, right? When you're trans, you kind of want to blend in. And now you have all this acne, right? It's a sore spot. A well-versed mental health clinician can help navigate these problems. So let's talk about it. Here are hormone changes in a chart. So two sides, testosterone and estrogen. When you go on testosterone, here's your voice. It'll either deepen on testosterone or have no change on estrogen. So if you've already gone through puberty as a cis male, your voice doesn't change. It's very unfortunate and a lot of stuff can happen. Um, you can do vocal coaching or tracheal, uh, what is it, tracheal shave, but it's a big sore spot. Muscles, testosterone increase, estrogen decrease. Body hair and facial hair, you get more hair growth. Well, on your face, I've lost all my hair on top, but I've dealt with that, I've dealt with that in my own time. Estrogen, you may decrease the coarseness of hair, which is great. Uh, hair in general, hair loss and baldness, also may decrease coarseness of hair with estrogen. Skin becomes thicker and oilier and may cause acne. And if you start shaving, your face isn't really knowing what's going on and it can look even worse. Estrogen becomes thinner and more sensitive, so it also may cause acne because you have to shave still, right? So those are really important things to consider. And I'll definitely be able to sell, send you these charts if you need. Feelings and mood. So as we know, during puberty, we have mood swings. However, mood congru uh, congruence in our identity is starting to happen. So you actually see a happier mood when you start hormones because you're feeling good. Menstruation stops on testosterone, not applicable for estrogen. Um, it's also important, though, if you do have trans male clients to note, just because your menstruation stops doesn't mean you can't still get pregnant. So you don't, so that's an important conversation to have if you have sexually active clients. Stop and consider what methods they're taking um, if they're having sex with cis men. 
libido increases, estrogen decreases. A lot of trans women are happy about that. Genitals, the clitoris will grow in size, average one to three centimeters. Estrogen, your uh, testicles will decrease in size, which is actually better for tucking, which is when you take the penis and you put it up between your butt cheeks, right? It makes it easier. Breasts, no change for testosterone, but breasts develop with estrogen. And this is really exciting for women. And it's also a pain in the ass because it hurts, it's sensitive. Um, so a lot of trans women actually are discomforted by it and it bothers them. Erection, so testosterone, no, I mean, yeah, you get erections with the clitoris, but it's not really like, you don't notice much difference. Um, estrogen, decrease frequency, hardness, and duration. Believe it or not, for some trans women, that's a problem because they're in relationships where they like to use their penis for sex. So that's something to consider. Fertility, infertile with long-term use, both. Now you're thinking, Jake, you just said you could still get pregnant when your menstruation stops. Yes, but it's a 0.0009% chance, right? The longer you are with infertility uh, on hormones. Doesn't mean it can't happen, I've seen it happen. So that's always something to consider. So this is just an overview. We're not medical doctors, unless some of you are in here, but most of us are not and won't have to deal with it. However, if you are writing letters or you are working with clients who are starting hormones, part of it is the informed consent model and your client knowing what can happen to them. So being able to have these conversations and see the awareness the client has about the process is really, really important. Because I've had clients who come in, they're like, oh, everything will be fine. I'm not concerned about anything. And I'd be like, really though? Because you have really luscious full head of hair and you might go bald and that doesn't bother you, right? So it's like knowing how to talk to a client about these things. I know it bothered me and no one warned me. <laughs> so gender affirming surgery. Not every individual decides on surgery. Desire or lack for surgery does not make someone t you know, trans or non-binary. So there's no level of like, I need it, I don't need it. Stay away from labeling it sexual reassignment. We are used to calling it that we don't call it that anymore, okay? Because we're not reassigning gender, we're affirming gender, okay? So when in doubt, use the word affirming. Surgery is constantly being improved upon. So just because somebody doesn't want it today doesn't mean five years from now, that may change. Doesn't mean they're wishy-washy in their journey. It just means that what they want isn't, you know, here now, and it might be later. It's also not important or not okay to ask somebody what surgeries they've had or plan on having. This goes for being a clinician as well. Maybe they come into you because they're like, I would like to talk about surgeries. And that's a little bit different of a conversation, right? Because you're like, tell me what surgery you're thinking of. But meeting someone for the first time, doing an intake and being like, okay, so what surgeries do you want? What surgeries have you had? That's not cool. Because I wouldn't ask, you know, somebody 
not to be crude, but I wouldn't ask somebody who has obviously had breast implants be like, oh, so tell me about your breast implant surgery. Like, why would I do that? It's not okay. Here are some common surgery terms. So I'm not gonna get super graphic because it's not needed and I don't know people's level of queasiness, but vaginoplasty is exactly what it sounds like. It's when they take a penis and they make it into a vagina. It's a very complicated surgery and the risks are very, very high. However, success rate is also very, uh, the outcome is very good. Phalloplasty is exactly what it sounds like. It's creating a phallus out of skin from the arm or the leg. Scrotoplasty is creating the testicles. Risk is super high, success very low. Um, most of the time people reject the implants because you have to put implants and it uh, gets infected. Metoidioplasty is the clitoris, as I told you guys, grows. So what they do is they release the clitoris from the clitoral hood, uh, which means that it gains about one to two inches. They can create a urethra uh, and you can actually pee out of it. It's not large enough to do penetration, but sometimes it's enough for a trans person. Mastectomy, uh, when they get rid of the chest, so it could either be two incisions underneath the chest or two holes in the side of the chest. It just depends on the size. Breast augmentation, we all know, breast implants. Facial feminization, uh, it's where they do a surgery. Sometimes they lower the headline, they shape it, they do rhinoplasty. It's a long, long recovery process, but for a lot of trans women, that's like the only surgery they want because it's a safety factor, right? It makes such a difference. And then laser hair removal, uh, that's all over the body. It's super painful um, and takes about 10 sessions. But most trans women, uh, if you want any of the surgeries that I listed on here for trans women, you actually have to go through laser hair. Any questions, quick questions on surgery and hormones? Remember, I'm not a medical doctor, so most of my information is uh, anecdotal. Can a trans man have sex? Yeah. So remember, sex is a very, um, so the question was, can a trans, with metoidioplasty, can trans man have sex if it's not enough for penetration? Absolutely, right? Sex is how you make it. And actually, there's a lot of really cool toys that were developed for trans men with metoidioplasty where you can stick the clitoris, since it's just big enough, in to a phallic phallic like device and they can get stimulation so you could still penetrate and feel it right um, and for a lot of trans men it's really affirming so there are a thousand different ways you can have sex um, and metoidioplasty actually makes it better because the clitoris which as i hope most of you know has eight thousand nerve endings in it right it makes for a really really fun time any other questions? A uh, friend who had top surgery uh, due to binding, it caused nerve damage. Have you heard of tucking can cause nerve damage as well? Um, so nerve uh, tucking, just to remind everyone, is when you tuck the penis up in between, the balls go up, right? Because you know how they can descend and ascend. Um, 
I haven't heard of nerve damage, but I've ha heard of testicular torsion and issues around testicular um, injuries. But I probably could imagine that there would be nerve damage um, to phallus. I would have to do research about that. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. But the main concern is definitely the testicles with tucking. Any other questions? I'll keep monitoring it. I just want to be mindful of time and get into the like actual mental health portions of stuff. Okay. You guys are doing great. Mental health. All right. So why is tr specialized training important? Okay. So in a survey, which I conducted, because I love surveys, of 314 LGBT individuals, 37% identified as TGNB. That's a really large number. Only 40 of those said they felt safe to be out to at least one person in their lives. And usually that one person was their therapist. Okay, so do you now see the impact that we have as mental health clinicians on our TGNB clients? Sometimes we're the only people that know. 14% of these individuals said they were out to nobody. Nobody. That's huge. So gender dysphoria, right, when it comes into play with all this, is its distress about discordant gender identity. And this can be social, emotional, or physical. And dysphoria is not that simple to eliminate. Once you transition, it's still there. I still get dysphoria. Mine, oh, someone said the age range around um, the survey. It was 18 to 65, actually. So it was a pretty wide number. Um, but dysphoria, like for me, I've been transitioned for more than half of my life now. I still get dysphoria every time I go shoe shopping because I know that my size six and a half feet is not going to fit into the shoe I love. And I hate it. And that's the one time that I'm like thinking I wish I wasn't trans because I've kind of settled into my identity, but it still sneaks up on me, right? Just because someone doesn't have paralyzing dysphoria doesn't mean that they're not trans or non-binary. So for some people, they can have a really awesome life. Their parents are cool, friends are accepting, but they're like, you know what? My chest just brings me a lot of anxiety. I can deal with it, I can wait, but it brings me a lot of anxiety. That's enough, right? They don't have to have a horrible life to be considered dysphoric. So some mental health as, uh, effect, effects, I don't know if that's the right effects. Maybe it's A, I don't know. I apologize, I'm not good with grammar. I'm a professional trans, not a linguistic major. So similar symptoms to PTSD. So you see the hypervigilance. Why could you imagine hypervigilance? Because you're around the world all the time wondering if people are figuring you out or clocking you. That's the term we use, right? Being able to tell that you're trans, your safety's at jeopardy. Are people going to uh, hurt you, right? Uh, nightmares. Uh, inability to eat, anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia that's unrelated to gender dysmorphia. We also have, see a lot of autistic-like symptoms, so people that have issues. Um, there's a great study, I wish I linked it, but um, about younger, like 14, 15, 16-year-old trans individuals being 
misdiagnosed with autism because they don't understand social cues or social interactions or they have sensitivity to noises or clothing it's because they have ptsd symptoms and they're not being socialized in the congruent gender right so they don't want to talk to people they're afraid of people they don't make eye contact and then once they start transitioning all these symptoms go away and it's because they're trans um, suicidal thoughts and ideation. So in a survey done uh, in 2011, 43% of trans youth said that they had attempted suicide uh, at least once in their life. And that number is probably higher. Because remember, these are just the reported symptoms or reported cases. So trans individuals, TGNB individuals, have been turned down for services. I know this firsthand, it's, it's happened to me. And in that survey, I asked them to write experiences. And so these are direct, di directly quoted experiences. Someone said they were seeking housing support due to losing their job because of depression, which was unrelated to being trans. And they disclosed to a clinician that they were trans. They told me they don't deal with trans issues or people at the organization I went to for help. I had to sleep on a bench for weeks after that, right? But it's like, how does being trans have anything to do with getting housing? Like, it doesn't make sense. This one too, um, I've actually experienced this when I was a kid was, um, but this was someone else's quote, I was suicidal and all they wanted to do was ask me what parts I had during my in intake at the hospital. I felt humu humiliated. Can I say that word? Imagine, right? going into a psychiatric hospital, the amount of bravery and effort it takes to even go ask for help. And the whole time someone is asking you what's in your pants. Would you want to stay there and get help? Probably not. It happens all the time, all the time. I hear it from people, clients, it, it happens all the time. This is not a rare occasion. So some individual effects of stressors, okay? So identity concealment. Hiding who you are can add stress. Internalized stigma. So this is just knowing and thinking that people think that there's something wrong with you. So every stigma that comes with being trans, you believe in it, right? That adds to the stress. Expectation of rejection, especially with health, health providers. We call that implicit rejection inability to keep a job, inability to provide for basic needs and have stable housing, a rise in suicidal thoughts and attempts, and repeated suicidal attempts. So for me, I attempted suicide three times. It took the third attempt for my family to start believing me and getting me help, right? I was lucky because the other two times I wasn't successful. But if I had been successful in even one of those, I wouldn't be here, obviously, talking to you today, right? So that's a huge risk, a huge, huge risk. So with all of this, we have a lot we've talked about so far. I want us to take a moment and have some reflection, okay? So what are some thoughts or comments you have so far um, regarding like the prior 
comments that we heard about, like sleeping on the bench or being turned away for services? And then what are some changes you might already be thinking of implementing in your practice? So this, let's take a moment. And if you want to share, I would love for you to type like, I would like to share, and then we can unmute you and, and call on you. Oh, makes me really sad. People go through this and the type of mistreatment and for people to say this is a choice. Exactly. Yes, Emily, thank you for sharing. It's extremely sad. Um, and the really cool thing is you're here today, right? So you are already the start of changing that narrative. Long-term identity concealment will eventually lead to suicide or suicide attempts, and the risks are even higher in the African-American community. Absolutely, Patricia, yes. Oh, you don't think you can, I think I can unmute you. So if you want, just type and I'll do it. Um, yes, yeah, so Patricia, you're absolutely right. And we're gonna talk about that in our next lecture, all about what we call intersecting identities. Um, and I think that that's something that we definitely need to focus on is about, you know, how, especially, you know, BIPOC, individuals of color is, it's a big thing. Yes, sex reveal party, not gender reveal party. It's absolutely true. Uh, my trans friends and I always joke. We're like, why are you revealing the genitals of your baby? It's so strange. Um, or uh, when uh, I have a lot of friends who are having babies and they're like, I'm having a boy. And I'm like, that you know of right now, right? Because, um, you know, you don't know how they're going to identify later, later in life. Okay, so working as a provider, why you're all, uh, why you are all here, right? So here are some negative themes, themes that we hear about when working with providers. So that providers lump in trans issues with every aspect of someone's life. So everything that happens to you is because you're trans. You're anxious, you're trans. Uh, someone broke up with you, you're trans. Um, got a bad grade on a test, you're trans, right? That's not true. Misgendering from clinicians and staff happens all the time. Not believing that a client is trans or non-binary because they don't look like they are. Like what does a trans or non-binary person look like? I don't know. If you could tell me, that'd be great. I don't know. Time spent in therapy is education rather than process. So when a person comes and has to educate their clinician on stuff, which none of you will have to do because you are learning here, that's a that's a you know, it's a bad thing. Asking questions that have nothing to do with presenting problems. Do you know how many, so I'm, I'm a trans gay male. So I date men and how many times I've been at a doctor's office or um, with therapists and they've been like, well, how do you and your you know partner have sex? And it's like, what does that matter? I'm here to talk about my mother. Like, I don't want to, you know, it's, that has nothing to do with my presenting problem. Um, discrimination around access to services. So we see that all the time. And because that's allowed, um, it happens more and more. Negative experiences. So here are more quotes, right? So stereotypes, straight and cis normative normalcy being pushed onto me, my queer and trans identity being seen as a symptom, right? So people trying to make you as straight looking or normal when it's like, maybe I want to be a radical trans person. You know, I'm allowed to be like that. Not respecting pronouns. 
identity, questioning my sexuality and gender, then having to use facilities that are not congruent to my identity. And then I've had clinical staff tell me they usually only work with men and women and I was their first other. That is not, that is not good. So here are some tips. I call them the three thinks. So one, think before you speak. Avoid patronizing statements. You're so brave, you pass so well, which means like, I would never know that you weren't a man, right? Mm -mm, don't say those things. That's not a compliment. It's a microaggression, which we'll talk about next time. Think before you speak. So if you slip on a pronoun, we talked about this earlier, don't make it about you, apologize and move on. And then consider the impact behind your statement. Why are you saying this? Is it to make you feel better, to make your client feel affirmed? What is it, right? Just think before you sit, you speak. Think before you assume. Don't assume that someone's life is bad because they're trans. That is not always the case. In fact, my life is awesome because I'm trans. I love the fact that I'm trans. Don't assume that someone's not accepted or loved. I'm loved by many people. I know people that are loved by even more people, right? And don't assume that they want to medically transition. Because being trans is what the person makes of it, not what we make of it. Think before you ask. What's the reason behind your question? I know that there's a lot of questions all of you have out there because you're just curious and it's fun to know, right? We've all watched, you know, Ricky Lake and Sally Jesse. I love looking into people's lives. But as a clinician, we don't get that opportunity. We don't get that right to ask prying questions. Is the question therapeutic or because you're curious? And just know that your client is not your science project. This is not about you. That's why I'm here, right? Yes, exactly. It's like saying you don't act black. That's exactly right. When you say things, you know, microaggressions, and we'll talk about that more. So therapy goes beyond gender identity. Like I said before, don't make therapy about being trans if that isn't the source for seeking therapy. You could be depressed and anxious and not have it related to your gender identity. Follow your client's lead. If they wanna talk about it all the time, talk about it all the time. If they don't wanna talk about it, they don't have to talk about it. And don't make something a problem if it isn't a problem to begin with. So if you're like, oh, well, maybe you're having issues with your friend because they're transphobic. It's like, how do you know that, right? It's not, not necessarily the issue. So here's what we call transgender non-binary affirmative treatment. So affirmative treatment produces a positive outcome and minimal client regret. Social support, which we're considered, right? We're considered social support, can act as a protective factor. And a clinician's knowledge and attitudes definitely impacts the quality of care provided. So after this training, if you think, gosh, this just is something that's kind of weird, like I just don't get it, please 
do not take on a trans client. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you and I don't judge you, but for affirmative treatment, maybe refer that client to somebody else. It goes both ways too. If you hear of a client that, or a clinician that might be struggling, be like, hey, maybe go to a training or maybe refer out, right? A clinician's knowledge and attitude impacts the quality of care provided. I want you to remember that. Here are some ethical considerations. Training, which we're doing. Competence, doesn't mean you're an expert, just means you're competent. You're competent. Consulting, I'm always available. Collaboration, research, and assessment, right? Assessing, you know, I go to clinics and I do um, assessments about transgender non-binary safety and inclusion and i'll be like you know those things need to change these things need to change right it's good to constantly assess the situation so here's another reflection what is one area in which you can improve upon when working as a clinician or caseworker with tgnb individuals so take a moment to yourself and think and if you want to share in the chat box you can if not that's fine of course What's one area you can already see that you need to work on, that you need to improve upon in your own practice? I'll share one for, from me as even as a trans individual. Oh, interest, you, you took what I was gonna say, right? One for me was definitely like I had to start doing it because I was so used to being affirmed in my gender, I forgot what it was like. So yes, introducing yourself with pronouns. A great tip, add your pronouns at the end of your email, right? And so new clients, if you're uh, emailing with them, can see that and feel affirmed, which is pretty cool. Okay, well, you guys take time to think. You can think all you want. I would write down all these questions so that you can think about them on your own, um, on your own time as well. You can never stop thinking. So, oh, just simply looking around looking through the eyes of a being, yeah, of being human and nothing else, exactly. But also having in the back of your head, right, some of these ideas that we've talked about, be more affirming, absolutely. Um, a great thing that I do with a lot of clients who might not get affirmation outside of the therapy room is playing like affirmation games, right? And being like, you know, what is one thing you could do today that's affirming that's like our secret, right? And you can come back and tell me that you did next week or like an affirmation bucket where they throw a bunch of activities that they can do throughout the week. And when they come back, you guys can talk about it, right? Being affirming as a clinician and sharing those experiences with them because they don't have other people to share them with. It's actually a really beautiful experience to have with somebody is to like, know you're that safe space. So what works? You know, Keisha said it, be affirming, be supportive, listen, have resources and knowledge of community in the area. You'd be surprised how many trans organizations there are in at least a 50 mile radius of where you live. Talk to clients like they're people, not statistics. Help them have individual power. So help them to take control of healthcare. That could be really, really empowering. And that could look like, um, you know, for trans men, if they have to go to the gynecologist, which is 
let me tell you, is that me going to the gynecologist is always an experience. Um, but working with your client and being like, okay, how can we make this funny? Or how can you take someone with you? Or, you know, do we write down questions? Do we role play, right? Giving control of healthcare really, really helps with empowerment. And also talking about resilience. So building on the resilience and have them add it to their toolbox. Because trans individuals are resilient inherently by nature. What does he, what did Patricia say? Uh, learn to accept pronouns beyond face value and appreciate meaning and the value it adds. To yes, because listen, if I were to misgender someone who was cisgender, they would be upset, right? So knowing that being affirmed in pronouns can be the simplest and easiest thing you can do for someone else. So here's some positive experiences. The therapist was open, receptive, not assuming, and helped me feel less alone. Gave good referrals, validation about oppression. Not having to explain myself quite as much or have too much focus be placed on my queerness and transness, unless I wanted there to be. Having a caseworker who could point me to trans safe housing and services was a lifesaver. So everything we've just talked about, right? And if you need resources, you can always reach out. I know resources at least all through California and bordering states. So here's the informed consent model. We touched on it a little bit, but we're going to talk about it more. So the informed consent model seeks to better acknowledge and support patients' rights for personal autonomy and choosing care options related to their transition, right? So it means if you want to come in and you want to do just, you know, a facial feminization surgery and nothing else, great. That's what you want. That's your right. Discuss risks and benefits of possible treatment options with the patient and respects the patient's capacity for self-knowledge. So everything I taught you about hormones and surgery, you get to have those discussions, right? It's not an outside of your scope of practice or competence because you're not doing it in a medical capacity you're saying talk to me about risks that you know and fears that you have around that risk right so talking to someone about how phalloplasty has a really high risk of infection and saying that must be really scary how does that feel but knowing that really helps Clinicians also work to assist patients in making decisions, right? So we're not here to tell you what to do. We're here to just assist in those decisions. So if someone says, I would love to start hormones, but my partner is, is afraid, you could say, how can I help you with that relationship, right? How can I help assist you in coming out to your partner? So the informed consent model is rather new, but it's my absolute favorite thing. So let's talk a little bit about your physical space because I know a lot of you probably work in clinics or places of physical. I know COVID's a little tricky, but we will be back there one day. Intake forms. Make sure there's a place on your intake forms for name changes. Alternative family structures, so two moms, two dads, a mom who, who transitioned, right? Uh, Multi-partners, 
open-ended gender and sexuality. So not saying male, female, other, because preferred and other means that it's a choice and we're not as valid. So instead saying, what is your gender? Leave a blank, have them fill it out. And have options for client to share whether their names and pronouns can be used with family members or loved ones. So if you're doing like a family therapy and the one of the individuals comes out as trans, be like, can I share this or not, right? It's always important because sometimes they don't know. Space awareness. So gender neutral restrooms and rooms, if you work somewhere that has beds, are really important. Making sure there's pamphlets and materials in the waiting room that reflect everyone. So if there's posters, see if you can have a poster that has someone talking about being trans. Not calling someone by their legal name in the waiting room if they tell you. So if they say, well, yeah, my legal name is John, like that's how I, you know, but I would really love for you to call me Jessica, right? Don't tell your staff members ahead of time. Don't refer to them as John, please. Like that will out them. Being aware of how a client identify, we talk about this around family members and other service providers and having opportunities to alert staff if client doesn't feel safe. So having that option for a client to be like, you know, so-and-so misgenders me and I don't feel safe, right? Even if it's another staff member, having that opportunity. Here are some bathroom sign examples. I think it's really important to talk about this. So here's some bad examples of bathroom signs. I see this a lot in restaurants and people think they're clever and I just, I feel kind of like humiliated when I see these. So like the whatever, just wash your hands. It's not funny because it's like, whatever, like whatever you are, just wash your hands. It's like, well, but my gender identity is actually really important to me. It's not whatever. Also this gender neutral toilet, it's like Batman and like a mermaid and a, an alien. It's like, that's not what, gen, like that's not gender. So you're saying that like gender is a joke? For some people it's not. Um, you know, I hear people when they introduce themselves in groups, you know, like group therapy, it's like everyone introduced their pronouns and they'll be like, oh, my pronoun is mermaid. And it's like, that's, that's invalidating for somebody whose pronouns matter. Here's a really good example. So the all gender restroom, it's a toilet. So it's not a man, it's not a female, it's not this weird like half man, half woman. It's like just a toilet. And that's what a bathroom is for. Um, and I think it's great. I think it's a simple, easy thing. There's also some signs that have the trans symbol on it. I would probably stay away from that as well because that could be potentially triggering for clients. So legal rights and safety. So it's really important to understand the legal rights around gender identity in your county and state. And we've talked a little bit about this. If you don't know, you can always visit the Transgender Law Center. I'll give info about that later. Um, tell you exactly what, what the rights are in your area. Access to safe resources and knowing who to call in an emergency is really important. And keep in mind, dealing with power structures, historical violence, is really big, especially with police law and enforcement. If we look back 
all the way to the LGBT civil rights movement, the very first uh, person that we think of as a civil rights activist was a trans woman, right, in the, in the movement, was a trans woman named Marsha P. Johnson. She threw the first brick at Stonewall. She threw the first brick and then was accosted by police and harassed and murdered, um, probably by people of power. So from day one of fighting for our rights, we've had issues with power structures. So keep that in mind. Um, that even goes for calling the ambulance or the emergency room, right? You know, if someone needs, is in a car accident, and they are unconscious and the EMT is taking their clothes off and they're like, what's going on here, right? Talking about with a client, how to navigate safety in general. So working across differences. So please refrain from trying to prove that you're an ally or a savior. We don't need a hero, we just need, a, we just need someone there. Take time to challenge your own assumptions about what is normal or typical for a trans non-binary individual. We've talked about that this whole time. Be careful not to get too caught up in the story or the novelty of your client. Okay, you're there to help your client. I know how exciting it is to like have a trans client and get to experience this. Believe me, I've been there myself. But ultimately, you're there to help your client, you know, not to like add the specialty to your name. Resources. ACLU is a great resource if you feel that your client's rights are violated. The Transgender Law Center is great for free legal help. They do everything from name change to gender change to, you know, laws, discrimination laws. Trans Can Work. It's a California-based, um, mostly LA-based organization, but they can help find job opportunities all over. Yes, be careful of your nonverbal cues. They speak louder. Yes, Patricia, exactly. And Trans Wellness Center uh, is a connection for various resources in one place. Oh, the LA LGBT Center does this really cool thing um, where they have an entire like suite dedicated to trans resources in one place so you can walk in they're still open during covid and you come in you're like i'm looking for lofi uh, facial uh, laser surgery or i'm looking for a therapist or i'm looking for housing it's all right there all right so reflection what is one action item you want to implement when returning to your practice or site so everything that we just talked about, and I know it was a lot of information, but everything we just talked about today, what is one thing that you want to immediately implement? And in addition to that, what will you teach others around being a transgender non-binary affirmative clinician? And this is, this will take a little while to reflect on, and we have some time because we're getting into the question and answer portion. Starting, so starting introducing myself with pronouns more regularly. Awesome, that's the most, that's the most simplest thing you could do, which is great. Wondering how I can better explain the importance of gender pronouns with coworkers. Ah, well, a great thing would be to kind of do like 
a pronoun game, right? And explain like there's aspects of each one of us that we like to be validated for. And if that aspect was ignored, it would hurt. And explain how pronouns for trans individuals are that aspect, right? So I have a friend who's like super into working out and like CrossFit and is always talking about it. And one day was like, I don't get this pronoun thing. And I'm like, okay, what if like working out in CrossFit, just all of a sudden, like no one was allowed to talk about it with you anymore. And everyone told you that like working out was stupid. Like, how would you feel? And he was like, oh God, I would feel unseen. And I'm like, yes, well, that's a conversation to talk about another day. But, you know, with trans people, like that's the same thing. It's like their pronoun is that simple, simple source of validation. And sometimes pointing out when using pronouns in a sentence randomly, like, oh, see how many times you just said she, right? It's like pronouns are used more than we think. Um, and being hyper aware of pronouns uh, to the point where it's almost annoying uh, can really help with coworkers. Okay, so give some time to reflect and we can definitely share more, but what I would love to do is uh, go into, yes, treat others. So I like the golden rule, but with trans and non-binary individuals, I actually love the platinum rule a little bit more and is treat others the way they wanna be treated, right? So if a trans individual is like, please you know, affirm me as male, but you identify as female, you can still affirm them, right? So it's treating other people the way they wanna be treated. Um, okay, so I'm gonna move into questions and comments. Here's my contact info. I know we have some time. Um, this is, I'm always available for additional questions, con uh, consultation, uh, but let's get into just generic questions. Anything that we might, you might, uh, be marinating over or something I didn't touch on. Nothing is too weird either. Ah, yes, think about motivation behind questions. Make sure that it's just not for your comfort level. And that's actually something to touch on is like sometimes we wanna ask questions because we're uncomfortable not knowing the answer, right? So the only exception to this would definitely be pronouns, right? It's okay to ask, but sometimes you're like, ooh, like who do they date? Or like, like what do they wanna do? Or like, what are they, how do they dress at home? You know, there's questions that you wanna know to help better navigate the therapeutic relationship. And it's okay to be uncomfortable, right? Aren't we teaching our clients how to sit into, in their uncomfortableness? So we can sit in our uncomfortable uh, comfortability as well, too. Yes, safety in case of emergencies. That's a great one. So I've actually been doing a lot of thought about this, especially because safety is a big, big topic just in general in the world. Um, so there's literal, like physical safety and then emotional safety. I'm going to talk about the physical stuff first. So um, with kids and youth, we'll talk about this more next time but there's this thing called a safe packet. And so I tell clients to create like a folder of uh, if they've had name changes, 
uh, emergency contacts, medications that they're on. So sometimes like testosterone, for example, interacts with like medications. And if you're nonverbal in a state of emergency, it's good to tell people that you're on testosterone. Um, so kind of like a packet that like if an emergency contact needed to grab that, they could. Also, um, I recommend to all of my clients that they get like business card size paper and fill out on the business card, you know, I am trans, non-binary, my pronouns are, my legal name is, um, my emergency contact is, and these are the medications and I'm on and surgeries I've had. Tuck it in your wallet so that if you're in a car accident or you are incapacitated, all because emergent uh, EMTs and stuff always look at wallets. They pull that out and they have all the information right there. Another thing to do about safety is if you if your client is, for example, legally female but identify as male and they're passing as male and everything is fine, but they haven't changed their documents and they're like going to the DMV or they're going to a liquor store to buy alcohol, to have a little business card that also says, this is my ID, but this is how I identify. So they don't have to verbally say it because you never know who's around you, right? I could be explaining to someone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like legally I'm female, but you know, my ID says that, but I, I'm trans and like some, a transphobe hears that and follows me out to my car, right? So having nonverbal communication is the always, always great. Um, so that's a great question. Emotional safety, we kind of work on as clinicians and we've sort of talked about that as well, but a great thing to do is to talk about safety in terms of boundaries and work on boundaries with individuals because there could be questions that people might ask you in public that could be potentially life-threatening. So a really great example, um, God bless my grandmother, was my best friend in the whole world, but she, English wasn't her first language. And it took her a really, really hard, long time to correct her pronouns from she to he because the idea of pronouns were tricky to begin with. And we'd be out at restaurants and she would refer to me as she, she, she. And I'd have to be like, I had to eventually sit her down and be like, grandma, you can't do that. I understand why it's hard, but you can't do that because it's my safety. Someone could hear that and follow me into the bathroom and be like, why are you in the bathroom? So working with clients to make, uh, to build up their resiliency and to build up their ability to talk about boundaries. Um, safety is, I could do a whole presentation on safety. I do it a lot actually for trans people. Um, okay, I see Patricia said, I hope I answered your question, um, Melissa, but Patricia said, before COVID-19, it was my desire for clinic to have a separate clinic uh, for sure needs are being met as a whole. Yes, uh, self, self Felt selfish plug. My uh, dream, my ultimate dream in the entire world is to run a fully functioning clinic that's all in one. Therapy, um, it's, it's contracted, so there's therapists that we pay so that clinic, uh, clients don't have to pay for. Um, doctors that we work that do pro bono. Like, I would love to have a one 
stop shop. So thank you, Patricia, that you've already been thinking about that. Um, in the meantime, there are resources. So there's the LA Gender Center. Uh, it's kind of a one-stop shop. There's also a lot of clinicians like myself who work in tandem with um, surgeons. So I know like this is what the surgeon needs. So my client never has to worry about like letters. And so there's a lot of ways to, to mold it together. But ultimately my dream is that none of this has to exist because everything is easy, but I don't think that will happen in my lifetime. So we're working, <laughs> we're working towards it. What other questions do we have? And as I said, if you have, oh, thank you. Um, but if you have questions that I haven't been able to answer, you can definitely send me an email. I know things are gonna pop up um, after. And just to give you a little preview of our next two. So the next one, um, oh, are these, they are not. Um, the trans, it's really interesting, trans, non-binary stuff is sort of lumped into LGB trainings. I don't think that's fair because it's not the same whatsoever, but I am working on trying to get, so if anyone knows anyone in DMH and they're like, I have someone, um, that would be my goal is to make this required uh, for everyone, not just DMH, but just like mental health in general, clinics, organizations, um, a really great statistic that we're going to talk about in our third training is the in the workplace, uh, the next generation of work, I guess, employees, you would say, about they're estimating 43% are going to identify as trans and non-binary. So we're not going away. <laughs> we're increasing the numbers. Um, so as I said, the next two, the next one we're going to talk a lot about privilege transphobia, microaggression, uh, oppression, and intersecting identities. It's going to be a bit of a heavier conversation, and I'm going to encourage a lot of participation in self-care. Um, and then our last training, we're going to look at generations. So we're going to start with children, and then talk about adolescents, young adults, adults, and then elders. And we're going to look at how care is going to be different for each one of of these uh, generations. Oh, the question was, do you know about hiring statistics for trans and non-binary clinicians, especially at DMH? And I said, I do not, but I would love to find out more about that. So I will do that. I have a friend who's an anthropology doctorate, and he's doing his um, dissertation on trans healthcare providers. So I might ask him to do some research for me around that. I will see you all or whoever decides to join next week. And if not, go forward and make some change.